Case number 2021404. Investigators Adam, Evan, Michael, and guest subject matter. International travel. Welcome to Case Study. I'm Adam. I'm Evan. I'm Michael. And we have a special guest with us today, Kimberly. I'm Kimberly. So today I wanted to talk to you guys about international travel. And I know several of us have previous experience with international travel specifically and the sort of challenges and issues. I know, Evan, you have not that much experience with international travel. I have no experience with international travel. I've technically been to Canada, but through some weird boundary water backpacking stuff. So no, no international travel experience. But that is why we have Kimberly today, who has also, like, along with Michael and myself, have done international travel. Correct. I have. I worked internationally for two years in Canada, and then I've also been abroad in India and other countries as well. We're going to go through kind of what you should look for when you're planning your trip or any travel restrictions, what to do when you're getting around places, and then actually doing the things that you set out to do in those places. So I wanted to start at the very top, what you need before you leave on your trip. And I have, I call three Ps. I don't think anybody else calls it that, including myself, but that's how I wrote it in the notes. Passport, packing, and planning. These are the three things that you should at least have at a minimum before you even start considering your trip. Have a passport that's not expired, very important. And now let's get into packing. One thing I will say about passport is some countries, for example, Japan, which I have a lot of experience with, you are not allowed to go into the country if your passport will expire within three months of your return date. So because of that, just really be sure and try to have it at least six months, if not a year out, just to ensure that that problem will not occur. And I hear that other countries may have this a similar rule. I have no experience with things outside of Japan, Australia, the UK, and other EU countries, but those don't really have limits like that. I don't think that are too egregiously awful. So when packing what you need to bring, I think everybody packs a little differently and we have a variety of different experiences here. So I'll just kind of list off a few things and then we can kind of go around and talk about what different people would consider useful for each situation. So things I wrote down were checking the weather, weight considerations, because typically planes have a weight limit for carry-on or checking in your bags, day trips versus, you know, how long you're gonna be staying there, shoes, and whether or not you're a guy or girl. So in my experience, I typically only travel carry-on only because I refuse to pay for any type of luggage extra fees because that's, I'm not about that life. And it also has to do with being more mobile in the country that you're going. So with carry-on only, you really only have like 15 kilograms max on most airlines, which is not a lot of weight. So you have to be mindful of what exactly it is that you're bringing with you the entire time. So for me, I have kind of two kind of mindsets I can enter when I'm traveling. It's either I'm going away for a weekend, like when I was in college and I'd fly home for a holiday weekend from UC Davis, or if I was going to study abroad for an entire year and a half. So for the shorter term, I, like Kimberly, would only do carry-ons because I have extreme distrust of all airlines and I believe they are actively going to steal everything I own. 
so I only travel carry-on, so that's just a big duffel bag or a tote bag, and then one like hard shell rolling thingy suitcase. If I'm going international, yeah, I suffer. Usually a lot of airlines do allow two free checked bags. For international, it's usually 50 pounds is the rule. The only thing I would say with packing 50 pounds is you might go a little over and some of the people that are checking your, you in for your um, check bags, they don't care. However, some of them are really strict about following the rules and will charge you the extra 50 or $100 it costs. And furthermore, just as a note, it's really important, I think, to check if you're planning on going to a country where you plan on flying within that country, you, it's a really good idea to check to see the weight and size limitations of bags within that country as a domestic flight because when I was flying to Okinawa, I got charged extra because my bag was two inches too large because it's accepted internationally, but domestically, a lot of flights have more restrictions and only allow you to take smaller and lighter things. And as a result, I had to pay more money, which I hated the entire time. Just a fun little note to put out there for y'all. So we're talking a lot about the the weight and whatnot, but a little more on the topic of what you're packing. I don't, not to get into the weeds of like, oh, bring extra socks or whatever, but something that I would encourage everyone to do is build a list. And I personally find actually writing a list down and checking it as I go is a way for me to keep track of everything that I need and everything that I've already packed and everything that I still need to grab because inevitably over the years you've we've all had a trip where it's like oh shoot I forgot this thing usually it's something small that you always use that's at home that you forget to grab a lot of people forget phone chargers which is why they're so overpriced in airport terminals and building an actual list will help you with the packing and you can also look up other people's lists for wherever you're traveling to or the season you're traveling in and see, hey, I didn't think about this thing. Maybe I should consider bringing it. And it'll help you kind of ease into your traveling process a little bit by actually writing down a list and going through it. So something that or a reason why I brought, you know, both you, Evan and Kimberly on is that you guys and I myself have gone camping and backpacking. And I would say that checking the weather and weight considerations are something that you basically have to consider also for international travel. You don't want to pack the wrong clothes for if you're going to somewhere really hot, for example. You don't want to bring a snow jacket that would probably be inappropriate for that kind of weather or the opposite, right? You don't want to go to somewhere where it's really cold and only have stuff you would wear in San Diego. That probably won't work unless you're from the north. I would say microclimates anywhere you travel are a big thing. So even though it might be hot during the day, keep in mind like layers are a great thing when you travel. So always have the ability to like add or remove a layer as you go. So the same idea as if you were to backpack, it's like have a lightweight long sleeve shirt, have a like zip up jacket that you can like pull over when it gets breezy. Windbreakers take up no space, not a lot of weight, but like can come in really handy pretty much anywhere in the world that you go. One more thing I might suggest for international travel or longer trips in general, they're very ugly, but fanny packs are great, especially ones that are really flat and have RFID security. I personally enjoy those for putting my passport or large amounts of foreign currency in just because it's literally against my stomach. I can feel it there and I'm pretty sure I would be aware if someone was reaching their hand under my shirt, which people oftentimes will not do. 
I would also recommend that, especially with passports and documents, always have a scanned copy with you in multiple different places within your luggage. So for example, if your passport were to get stolen or like part of your money were to be taken by a pickpocket somewhere, you at least have a second stash tucked away somewhere else. I know for women travelers, it's very difficult and can be intimidating at times if you have large sums of money or valuables on your person, but having it in multiple pockets that are either locked or like closer to your body, you lessen your risk of being a target. And I wrote down good shoes. If you're traveling, you're going to be doing a lot of walking, most likely, and you need good shoes. That it, it, your that's your main method of transportation. You're you don't want to be on day three of a 12 day trip and go, my feet hurt. <laughs> it's it's really not going to be a good time. So. Michael, you're in the you've traveled in the UK. Do you have any shoe experience because I know sometimes as Americans, people can identify us by like what type of shoes we wear. Do you have any recommendations on what not to wear? So in general, I really would not recommend honestly any type of like fabric line top shoe. So like a Nike is generally not something I would suggest. What I actually would suggest for a more affordable and perhaps for more people than others would be vans because a lot of them come waterproof and because it so often rains and drizzles and sprinkles and everything's literally a slipping hazard i got there with a pair of nikes they were useless i threw them away and i just bought a pair of vans there was no use having shoes i couldn't wear for three weeks that would have been a waste of my time waste of space and waste of effort to pack and transport back home so i just bought a pair of vans another thing honestly a lot of people there have wellies as they call rain boots there but i wouldn't really i wear them there because unless you live there only because i find them extremely heavy cumbersome to put on take off and they just are honestly not particularly comfortable i'm sure there's a lot of other like kind of chucka boots that can be worn for men particularly if you want to be a bit more dressy that are often waterproofed as well you can also just waterproof your own shoes that would also work yeah i got called an american because i only had nikes though that was pretty much the giveaway that I was the American. All right. So packing kind of ties into, I would say, the rest of it. But I think what a lot of people tend to focus on when they have kind of ideas of, I want to go travel, is planning. They'll make big lists of, here are all the things I want to go look at, but they don't really consider any of the other things. And that's kind of why what I wanted to talk about in today's episode was things you need to consider, like the packing, travel restrictions, etc etc so in terms of planning i would say you know you probably want to think about obviously how long you're going to be there what you want to see is there anything that you really must see right there's lists on lists for every destination you just go and pick one look at the pictures and some other extra things that i i think are less considered are if you're having multiple people in your group that will change planning drastically because now instead of just planning for yourself, now you have to plan for one, two, three, four, X number of people. And that will increase costs. That'll increase planning logistics. Like you gotta feed everybody now. You gotta house everybody. You gotta get all these people to where they need to go, you know, and that can eat into the next bullet, which is setting a budget where you gotta pay for all this somehow. So transportation, lodging, food, things you want to buy, souvenirs, emergencies, things like that. On the note of emergencies, I know that whenever I travel, a lot of websites will pop up and say, you should buy travel insurance. I'm just curious, have any of y'all ever bought travel insurance? I personally never have unless it was required by my program because I honestly thought 
this is a waste of my money. Like, I don't need this. I obviously, something bad could happen, but I don't feel like I would do anything that would be putting myself at greater risk than usual. So why would I need insurance if I'm in another country that I'm very comfortable in and personally feel safe in, where it honestly feels like I'm just walking around my hometown? I think it depends on where you're in the world. Uh, I would say travel, I've done, I have purchased travel insurance in the past to go to India. And that's one of those countries where it's like, there's a lot of like different areas and different like regions where you have the poorer like communities as well as like the more wealthy, like well-to-do communities. Travel insurance comes into play more, I would say, if there's like a medical emergency. So as an international traveler moving to a different country or going to a different country, whether it's like a short amount of time or a long amount of time, any like splinter in the finger, infection, um, if the water isn't drinkable or potable in that country. So if there's different like bacterial diseases that you can like acquire or like that we're just not used to the same kind of food or like sanitation practices. So like if you end up needing to go to the hospital or need an IV to like get fluids in you, it's a good backup plan. But I think it really depends on your location. Are you going to a third world country? Are you going to a well-developed country? And it also has to do with like how much you're willing to spend. I know a lot of credit card companies out there will actually offer you kind of included traveler's insurance within that card. So it's a good program to like look into to see if that's something that your credit card or bank offers. Other things you want to probably plan for is bathrooms. In European countries, I know specifically all the bathrooms they're public, but you got to pay for them, which means you got to bring extra coins. You got to bring some cash in Asia. As another example, they could be squat toilets. Ever tried squatting on a toilet? You're going to have to learn. And then also just generally, you know, bringing soap or, or toilet paper if those places don't have them. And they're generally good to have with you anyway. I would say even if COVID has taught us anything, hand sanitizer is your friend. I think when traveling, having a little bottle with you at all times, I know that there's a lot of people out there in the travel community that love like wet wipes. So as like a makeshift shower or like just like wipe off your hands or your feet, um, if you get dusty, those come in handy. But no, definitely from like a female perspective, don't be afraid of those kinds of toilets. Like it, it's a little bit of a learning curve, but like having like even like the right kind of like pants that are movable to be able to like maneuver your way into like all those different like situations. It's, it just takes a little getting used to, but it, a lot of it is just being open to the idea that like it is a different country and you're there for the experience and it's okay. And this is why planning and packing kind of go hand in hand because assuming that you recognize these sort of issues that might come up ahead of time, you'll be prepared in your packing to go, okay, maybe on this day I'll be somewhere that there's limited numbers of bathrooms nearby. Well, okay, then how do I make sure that whatever I bring helps facilitate that easily while you're there? Um, and the last one I think is actually pretty important is safety. In the case of the US, we have our Department of State, which publishes travel restrictions. And before COVID, you could look at each company, or sorry, at each country's travel restrictions on their website, and it would tell you I think one to four, how safe or dangerous uh, a country was. And it was always interesting because different world events would change that rating. And once I remember I was planning a trip to Japan last March, March of 2020. And as we all know, that's about the time everything locked down for COVID. So it was interesting at that time I was watching the state travel guidance 
for all of these different countries. And basically, they just basically all started turning more and more red at the higher tiers, eventually to the point where the State Department just said, no travel. They're all the highest level of risk. Just don't do it. So Yeah, and safety is a huge thing, especially for solo female travelers out there. Because it's like, do you travel in a group? It's always safer to travel in a group. It also has to do with like time of day as well. So I know a lot of people like to go out during the evenings, but sometimes walking around, regardless of your gender, like it's broad daylight or night, it's safer to be outside during the daylight hours just so people can see you and you have more visibility of like what's going on around you. And just like personal awareness and being aware of your surroundings and like who's, who's around, who's following you, What's your like nearest point of exit if you need to like leave for some reason, especially on like any type of public transportation, always be aware of like even traveling on a plane. It's like, where's the closest exit? Like if I needed to like, if some sort something came up, how do I get out? And before we, we move on completely from the planning aspect of it, and, and this kind of relates back to safety and, and really all of it, the setting a budget aspect and the cost of traveling really kind of determines where you're going to go and how long you're going to be there. For us personally, Kimberly and I were planning a trip and looking at prices of flights and stuff. And really the flights are one of the most important, or one of the largest costs of traveling. And so now you start looking at things, you're like, okay, how long can I stay there and, and then come back? And that will partially determine where you're going to go. Are you going to fly out internationally and visit a few different countries? Are you going to fly to one and kind of stay there for a little bit? But really the, the cost and the budgeting is kind of a really important step of the whole planning aspect because that will determine also from an American perspective, the dollar is really strong compared to a lot of other economies. And so you can go to uh, less developed countries and be able to make your dollar last longer. But then there are different concerns like the, the safety and then the, the different customs and, and you know the bathrooms are different in a lot of those countries because they're not necessarily like a Western European country. So that kind of all plays into your decisions about where are you going to travel? What do you want to see and what do you want to do is what can you afford? Yeah. And I would also maybe include in that, you know, transportation, public transportation versus like a bus, taxi, are there drivers, things like that. Food. If you like eating, a lot of people like traveling for food. I know that you got a budget for food. It's a non-zero amount of money for food and, and, and lodging. Where are you going to sleep? You could try staying up the entire time. Wouldn't recommend it, but it's doable. Anyway, so some other safety considerations, I would say, uh, make sure you know where your local embassies are. Usually, at least in the U.S., you can sign up with the State Department and you can tell them, hey, I'm going to this country at this time. And you can sign up for like their email list and they'll send you email updates for safety issues and also contact info for where the embassy's phone number, location, things like that in case you need something. All right. That, I think, rolls nicely into our next block of information, travel restrictions. So as we just talked about, we're still in a pandemic. So the State Department, at least in the U.S., has advertised that now is not a good time to travel. You can do it, but they don't recommend it. And as a matter of fact, you are required to get a COVID test when you land. And most countries have a quarantine enforced. So as an example, 
um, we had some family friends that went to went back to Taiwan. And when you go back to Taiwan, as soon as you step off the plane, they check your temperature and they they shoulder you off to the side and they basically bus you to a hotel that they mandate. And you basically cannot leave until two weeks are up. And you can order food and you know get food delivered, but basically you are quarantined for two weeks before you can actually go out and do anything. And I think that's actually the case with a, a lot of other countries. And aside from that, from, from COVID times, a lot of countries will have visa restrictions. So depending on the country that you pick, you may have to apply for a visa before you go. Or when you land, you have a landing permit that gives you a certain amount of time that you're allowed to be in the country. For example, an example of these visas would be, I was going to the United Kingdom for three weeks. I had to have the visa in order to board the flight to go to the United Kingdom. On the other hand, I went to Japan, did nothing. It was fine because Japan and visa have a contract where U.S. citizens on U.S. passports are allowed to just enter and leave the country as long as it's within 90 days visa-free. I know in India they have a visa where it's good for 90 days, but you, it's something to budget for. Because I believe when I picked up my visa, it was over $100 like extra to like apply and like get all that good stuff, all the like permitting and everything else go through and like sent to you. When I was working in Canada, they had like special work visa permits, which were applied for by like my company. But I know if you're planning on working internationally as an, a foreign foreign national like in a different country, make sure you check the different laws because you don't want to be caught in a country working where you're not allowed to work. And it's a whole other process to try and like make money while you're like abroad. I've never had to deal with passports and international travel because I've never actually really done it. How do you do you apply to like to India or to Japan for the visa or does it go through the State Department? How do visas work? So to my understanding with when I applied for a visa to go to Japan for your study, I had to go to the nearest Japanese consulate, which in our case would be Los Angeles, do a bunch of paperwork that took way too long, waited eight hours that same day, took the visa home and the paperwork home. And then I just was told, put it in your passport. Do not touch it. Do not move it. Leave it there until you are going onto your flight. Because on the f well, before you board the flight, the flight attendants and staff will check all the visa paperwork to make sure it is in order. You're boarding legally. You have everything in order, and that you will and it's in done in order to prevent people from getting on who would be turned back from when they land in Japan when they get checked checked into the country with their paperwork. And a lot of times with visas, they'll either stamp it in your passport or they'll actually like staple the piece of paper into your passport so you can't lose it. If you do end up getting it like emailed to you, it's a good thing to like make sure you have an extra copy of that just in case like it gets your passport gets misplaced and you need to like go to the closest embassy to be like, yes, it's okay that I'm here. I did check in. And a lot of times some countries, it's just a matter of paying money. So I know for India, it was just an online application of like, please route us this amount of money. And they do a quick background check on you to make sure you're not like some crazy criminal. And then you're good and you should be approved to go. But it does take at least 60 days, I think, to get approval. So it's something you have to plan ahead and make sure that you, before you travel, that you check all the visa permits and everything. So a question for both of you then is, I've not actually heard of any airlines checking visas before boarding. Is that pretty consistent in both of your experiences? Every time I've gone to Japan for more than 90 days that was on a tourist visa, 
they've insisted where we need to see your passport we need to see your visa paperwork that it's in there the st- the um the things are stapled or that i just hand them the entire document packet that i was given from the consulate a lot of times it has to do with when you're on the international flight they'll let you board from america to your destination but you'll while you're filling out your customs paperwork on the plane before you land that's when they start asking do you have all your visa paperwork there is a way to a lot of times apply while you're in the country, but it is a hassle and it delays you and you kind of get routed to like a special like corridor if you don't have all your paperwork figured out ahead of time. Okay, because I've experienced that when I've gone to Taiwan, which is right before you land, they're like, here's the paperwork, just fill it out. And then by the time you get to immigration, they're like, all right, here's the form that I filled out earlier. They just check everything, do the whatever, and then wave you through, basically. Okay, and then in my experience, at least when I went to Europe, at least within the EU, you can take off, you can land in any EU country, travel to any other EU country, and then leave, but it'll basically be a standardized stamp that says, hey, you entered in this EU country and you left from this one, but it's all within the EU, so you're all good. You don't have to do anything. Great. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. So I wanted to cover a few more miscellaneous topics before we move on to actually sightseeing, traveling, getting around and things. One of the ones that that Kimberly and Michael brought up earlier was your credit card. A lot of the times you'll have to tell your bank that you're traveling so that when you start charging your credit card in another country, they won't go, hey, someone stole your credit card and is trying to charge you money in another country. On top of that though, you should be on the lookout. Different credit cards and banks will have different rates for international payments. So make sure that the card that you have either doesn't have any or very little so that when you are charging, when you're just swiping away at whatever you're buying, you're not spending too much. You don't need to. Typically, when you travel internationally, you take a plane. So I just listed some things that are useful, at least for me. And I think Michael contributed to this list as well. So I think Michael and I, I think, came up with at least some of these items you know, make sure your all your electronics are charged. Sometimes the planes will have outlets and you can you can charge your phones that way. Make sure that you have noise canceling headphones. I found those to be really, really useful on planes just to block out the airplane noise because it can get droning after after some time. Comfortable clothes, shoes that are easy to take off, hand sanitizer as we talked about earlier, very important. And a light jacket, because airplanes can get pretty cold, I would say. So I also believe a light jacket or sweater is really useful, not only because, you know, it's breezy in there, you're on there for multiple hours, you might get cold, but so a lot of long haul flights will give you blankets. I do not personally believe they are ever washed or cleaned, so I refuse to unwrap them. I refuse to unwrap the pillows. I will just ball up a sweater jacket, use it as a pillow, take out another sweater, and just put that on because I have trust issues with cleaning, especially nowadays. A lot of long haul flights will also give you slippers. Slippers, they're actually pretty good. 
as long as you have shoes that you can take on and put off really easily for when you're taking off and landing. Their slippers are no qualms here. They're really convenient when you just have to go to the bathroom and it's pitch black and you can't see anything. One other thing I might add is if I might suggest taking your own toothbrush and toothpaste. I know a lot of flights I've personally gone on do give you toothbrushes and toothpaste within the bathroom. You can find them. They put them out maybe the nighttime of the flight when the lights are off. But a lot of these are first come first serve. So frequently they're very popular items and you can no longer use them. It's also very good if you have particular toothpaste you need to use for medical reasons or if you just have an extreme preference for the type of toothbrush or type of toothpaste because frankly the toothbrushes are very painful, they hurt, and they're honestly probably really bad for your gums. I know when going on planes, I found that scarves are the most versatile thing that I've ever packed in my carry-on suitcase because they can be like not only a blanket, but they can also be like an eye mask if you're like sensitive to light. So if your partner next to you is reading a book or something and it's just like a little bit too much, it's a good way to like block out or like put it over your head to like cover your ears. With planes, I know a lot of people struggle, like especially long haul flights, they suffer from like feet swelling or hand swelling. So when you're up at altitude for so long, there's different types of clothing items that you can wear, either like loose fitting shoes or clothes. I've seen people where they can't actually get their feet back in their shoes after they've been on a flight for 18 hours. So compression socks might be something that you wanna think about investing in if that's something that is concerning to you. Or even taking like small amounts of like medication with you. I know some people will take melatonin on the flight to help them sleep if you have issues with like blocking other people out and like being able to sleep on the flight. Because no one wants to be awake for 18 hours straight while like kind of cramped in a compressed cabin. Another maybe obvious but not on our list right now is bring a empty water bottle with you to the airport. When you get to the airport, fill it up with water. You're going to want it on the flight. Cabin air dries you out, and you're going to want to drink something that isn't the water that they hand you on the cart all the time, especially if you get thirsty in between snacks and meals. A trick that I learned from my past year in traveling, I had to travel for work, unfortunately, during the pandemic. I thought about this and I did it every single time I went and I think I will continue doing this forever. I put my phone in a clear Ziploc bag. My phone has a fingerprint reader and the fingerprint reader works through the Ziploc bag. So when you are trying to, as an example, I'll have my ticket on my phone the screen brightness will automatically turn up all the way. So I can still scan it on the the ticket scanner, but it stays basically isolated so that when you put it in like the security scanner, it's in that tray with everybody else's stuff, that the trays that they also don't clean, like the blankets they don't clean, then you're good. And then when you're out and about and you're just carrying it around, then it's you don't have to worry about like where germs getting on your phone and it, it's protected. Because the phone is the thing that you basically carry around with you all the time. It's got your maps, it's got your ticket, it's got your itinerary on it basically. Might as well keep it clean. And something that might be useful if you travel a lot is the TSA pre-check and global entry. If you hate security lines, get it. It's like relatively cheap for the amount of time that you can have it for. I'm actually meant to go do my interview. It was supposed to be last year and then they closed their offices. So I have to figure that out sometime. Luckily they extended that. As someone who has had global entry for a bit and has used it a few times, 
I also highly recommend it. I find for the price to always have TSA pre-check on every flight I go is lovely. I just ignore the throngs of people standing in line, not following six feet apart. Proceed straight to get through the security check. Um, everything's very, very simple in pre-check. You don't take anything out. And I am through security in less than 10 minutes, usually on average. Another thing that Global Entry, by its name, indicates is it's particularly useful if you are going abroad constantly. Because when you come back into America, there are obviously very long lines to get back into the country through U.S. customs and immigration and whatnot. With Global Entry, there is a specific Global Entry line and or a Global Entry kiosk you use. This also, similar to TSA PreCheck, will reduce all the waiting you do to maybe 10 to 15 minutes overall. And you just show them your passport, which has the Global Entry ID code that you have as a holder of it tied into your passport but they also give you a card, you may show the card as well, and then everything's all good and dandy, and it's just really easy and really convenient if you go abroad a lot. Anyone that has flown into LAX will know the struggle. The immigration lines are terrible. Speaking of LAX, border crossings are something that are very unique to states along the border, including Canada and Mexico. Those operate, I would say, similarly to plane travel, but slightly different. Definitely. So for an American citizen, if you are planning on driving or walking across either border, so Canada or Mexico, we have this really cool option of having passport cards, which fit in your wallet. I personally have mine on me at all times. I know recently I had an accidental trip to Mexico and was not intending to go there, but ended up crossing the border by mistake. Border lines can range anywhere from like a few minutes to hours. So if you are planning on crossing the border, or even if you're not planning on crossing the border, always be prepared with your like passport in hand. It's a lot less, lot less difficult if you have it with you. I know going across Canada, we would always have issues bringing items from the U.S. to another country for the camp that we were working at. So they would basically ask us to declare any like sellable goods. So any type of like food products or anything like that. Canada, I know, has specific restrictions about like fruits and like chicken products. So make sure before you drive or walk, you're aware of what those restrictions are as far as like what you can and can't bring into the country. You don't want to get pulled off into secondary and have them search your entire car. That's no fun. And speaking of Canada and Mexico, something that you should consider when traveling is any language barriers. If you're in a country that is not predominantly English speaking, you have to make sure you have a way or have some sort of solution for crossing that language barrier. Luckily, we have Google Translate, which can do wonders now, where basically you can just type in what you want to say in English, translate it to the target English, might be kind of, or sorry, the target language, and it might be kind of broken, but it gets the idea across. And I think that is good enough to get a, a, to get by. But don't go to a place and expect that they will all speak English. So I worked at a campground here in California for a while. And we would see a lot of international travelers there. And for the most part, they all generally spoke very good English. Uh, we saw a lot of Western European, a lot of French, a lot of German, a lot of Swiss you know, some Netherlands. 
And while they did speak good English, occasionally we would run into times where it's like, I can't tell you what I need to tell you. And I would break out Google Translate as the employee and, and, and use it as a way to get it across to the, the travelers, you know, what they needed to. And it, it works great. Other times I've had to do stuff like that are with a, a deaf traveler who was coming through and I needed to communicate with them because they were having a problem that needed some resolution. He needed like some phone numbers and for, you know, for me to call somebody. And so we had to communicate with that. And language barriers can be a really big deal when traveling, but some of the newer technologies these days really make it simple. But there's also a, a it's also really polite to still make an effort in your international travels to learn the language, at least to a basic, I can kind of find what I need to hear. From what I understand, it's just, it's really appreciated to show that you're actually trying to be there and not just bring your Americanism everywhere, so. Yeah, and even just having the simple phrases like, hello, how are you? I'd like to order like this type of food, like when you're going to restaurants is, goes so far and I think especially in European countries, they really appreciate it when you go out of your way to try and speak a language that's not English. So even if you're not fluent in, say, French or German, but you might know more Spanish, if you start speaking Spanish, they will probably try and help you more. So just be courteous and kind, especially since it's not your country of origin and, like, it's their home. So language is a huge part of like someone's culture and like how they feel in general about international travelers and how they're coming in to like their place. For sure. And it's, you know, you have to make sure that you understand these sort of cultures when you go to different countries. They're all different. They're all very unique. Try not to mix them up. So some of the culture aspect I would say in different countries is their public transportation. As a matter of fact, in different countries, as an example, in the U.S., we are very bad at public transportation. Our public transportation infrastructure is almost non-existent compared to other developed countries. I'll use the example of Taiwan. Their subway system there in Taipei is probably one of the best I've used. It's everywhere. It can get you everywhere. It's clean. It's quick. It's always on time. It makes life a lot easier. If you, especially if you don't want to drive in a foreign country, which is its own other issue. But just getting around, I would say. Any other options like, is there a bus system? Those are usually tied to the any metros. Trains, at least when I went to Europe, trains were an option, a pretty viable option to travel between cities if you didn't want to fly. Yeah, and speaking of trains, I know in a lot of Asian countries, they use train as a primary method to get between like the different city states within like the main country. I know when I was in India, we actually went through like we did the sleeper car situation where you have like bunk beds that are stacked three high and multiple families kind of crammed into like one car area. It can be scary as someone who's traveling by themselves. But I would say just if you're going to go that route, it's like that is the cheapest and most affordable option to do like overnight train travel. And then that way you get leave yourself so much more time to explore during the day and like see different things without like wasting your time traveling from like place to place. I would also like to counter that by saying you should not do that in the U.S. (laughs) 
there are, I've just heard many, many stories of people traveling on Amtrak in sleeper cars and something that would have taken maybe five hours in a plane takes them about 25 by train. So again, America is not the pinnacle of public transportation here. A few other topics that we have, just mostly regarding other things to do like lodging, you kind of have different lodging considerations. Again, this overlying theme is like your price, safety, and kind of what kind of experience do you want to have there? A few different examples are hostels, hotels, Airbnbs, capsule hotels in cities that are known for them, um, things like that. So I personally like capsule hotels. I like not dealing with people when I travel because I can be very temperamental when I don't have enough sleep. So I find capsule hotels to be really convenient just because Yes, if you're claustrophobic, I would not recommend them by any means. If you're not okay with regulating any kind of temperature control or noise control, maybe don't choose a capsule hotel. But if you want to just experience it for maybe one night, you can save quite a bit of money compared to uh, a hotel or an Airbnb. What is a capsule hotel? Yes, so a capsule hotel is, in essence, think of it kind of like an apartment that you rent on a nightly basis of places where of beds they're not even rooms they're like little so generally the easiest way to explain it is there is a large wall and each capsule for a capsule hotel each one has like one little nook inside of it and these are just all across the wall and you just live inside the little hole in the wall for the night there's usually a little shelf or two for like a backpack because it's very common that people that are backpacking around different parts of Japan in particular will have backpacks that will just fit very well onto the shelves. I wouldn't really say a suitcase will fit but you can give it to the people at the desk and usually they can hold on to it for you. Or if you're just honestly really exhausted you can go in and rest for just a few hours and that's a thing that can be done with capsule hotels that I found to be beneficial. And typically they'll have like dorm style shared bathrooms and like locker rooms. So they'll have a locker for you to put your luggage and you'll have like a sh big giant sink that everybody like brushes their teeth at or whatever. But the toilets are separate, obviously, but they're more like very short term overnight or several nights kind of get in. You're there to basically sleep and then get out. It's very space efficient. Food, I would say important. You need food to survive. So there are a couple ways to go about it. There are the you travel for food. You're like, I want to hit this specific thing. I want to eat this. I want to eat this. There is also the day-to-day -day kind of survival. Where am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? If I get hungry during the day, am I going to be able to find snacks? Is there a McDonald's? Usually McDonald's in other countries are uh, better <laughs> than the ones here at home. Things like that. One thing I'd like to add is it's actually very common for international travelers to get dehydrated very quickly because they forget to drink water. So, reminder, please drink water. Whether you're traveling abroad or not, you should drink water. Another thing about water that I found particularly interesting is in the UK, you have to pay for all water, which is something that I, as a resident Californian, am very shocked by because we have many free water faucets and spigots that before the coronavirus imploded and affected everyone's daily life, were able to be used by everyone. And in general, in a lot of other countries, this is pretty common, it seems. There don't seem to be as many, like, I don't even, water fountains or things that you put against your, your water bottle against and it will just fill it up automatically. 
Um, those just don't seem to be as prevalent outside of America, to my knowledge, that I have personally seen in my experiences. So, you know, water, it might not be taste great, but it's going to keep you alive and keep you healthy and actually allow you to travel the country that you're in. So again, please drink water. And if you had the water bottle from the plane that we told you to bring earlier, you will have the bottle ready to go. On top of that, in a lot of European countries, the default water is sparkling. So make sure that you ask for flat water if that is something that is not up your alley, which it is not for me, because that they will serve you sparkling water when you ask for water. And that is maybe not what you want. I know in third world countries, there is a strong reliance on buying plastic water bottles. For someone who doesn't really want to create as much plastic waste as possible, there's always the option to bring your reusable water bottle and also get something like a life straw. So those are like small portable water filters where you basically drink out of the straw and it acts as like a filter. All of those types of like water filtration systems have been tested in all sorts of different like war zone climates where it's like a little oil puddle and it like filters it just fine. So there's also like UV SteriPins if you're going to places where there may not be potable water. So think of it like if you're backpacking and you would need to like purify your water somehow, there's lots of like small portable options that you have if you need to like find water that's like in a public area, but like make it safe if you don't have access to be able to boil your water. That's actually something you should also be consider. You should be considering while you're planning, which is how good the water is there and like in their hotels and stuff like that. Because like you say, a lot of the times, even in developed countries, you want to make sure that the municipal water is basically good enough to drink or you have to go buy water yourself and, and fill it up. And something to note about water as well is it's not just water you need to be concerned about. It can also be ice in iced drinks. I know in Mexico, sometimes travelers coming over from the stateside will avoid the water, but they'll have iced drinks like in a soda or something. And that will give them problems because it's still the municipal city water. And it just it has different bacteria in the system, even though it's it is still clean water. It is still potable water. It's just we have different systems going on in, you know, in our bodies. And so it's just not adjusted to it. And even that little bit can be an issue. So things to keep in mind. Yeah, and I know even ice, if ice is an issue, brushing your teeth, I know a lot of people will forget. They'll just like automatically like go to the sink and turn on the water. Make sure you don't do that if you're in a country that the water's not safe to drink. I don't know. I know it might just be an American thing, but I know some people like drink their shower water. Um, most other countries don't do that. So if you're traveling abroad, make sure you're not like trying to like drink water while you're in the shower. As I've gone on a cruise ship before and I'm definitely not doing that there. So it still applies. And finally, I would say, you know, you need money, but the issue is how do you get the foreign countries money? There's a couple ways you can go about it. You can exchange at a foreign exchange back home or another strategy is try a local bank. Like your, maybe your bank has money exchange services. You just have to let them know ahead of time and they can order it for you. Take it out of your account. The fees will be lower for transactions. Typically the foreign exchange services, they'll get you your money, but it'll be a little more costly. Yeah, and I know sometimes there'll be a lot of like money change exchanging like facilities in airports. Not every facility is going to give you the best rate. So make sure you're aware of like what the exchange rate actually is and what they're offering you. So if they're like, for example, if you're in India and you're trying to get like 
when I was there, it was like for every one US dollar, it was like 60 rupees. If they're offering you 30 rupees to the dollar, not a great exchange rate. So know your rates, know your prices, know what to expect. There's going to be a little bit of overhead, but it shouldn't be too crazy. And obviously you do want to have some cash that's pretty much an essential of every place you will go to when traveling. But it's nice to, again, to be able to use your own cards as you like. And for me personally, I found that opening up a Charles Schwab account here in the States has been extremely helpful. I found that I was able to just move some money over from my main bank over to my Charles Schwab account, and then I could just treat my Charles Schwab account kind of like a basic checking account and use the debit card and just withdraw money as I needed to. And the benefit I found was that it is one, easy and free to set up. Two, there's no minimum payment or no minimum account you need to maintain in the account. And three, even if there are ATM withdrawal fees, you get reimbursed for them at the end of the month. So it's essentially like you don't have to pay any weird foreign transaction fees, which can really add up over the over time. Yeah. And again, if you had done your research with credit cards before and letting your bank know that you'd be traveling, you might also want to check to see if they have additional benefits like being able to pull money out of ATMs in the local currency, because then maybe you might not even need to convert it. You could just go ahead and just pull money out from the ATM in the local country rather than having to carry it with you if that's preferred. And I know some banks will actually block entire countries, like all transactions originating from certain countries. So like for Chase Bank, no transact. If you're in India, you can't use your Chase credit cards at all. So you're going to be carrying around a lot of cash if you have Chase. So be mindful of where you're traveling. If there's high fraud in the area that you're going, Make sure you let your bank know, make sure you plan ahead. And if you do need to get a different credit card, make sure you have enough time to do that. And I think that's all the time we have for talking about travel. I know it's kind of a weird time to be talking about international travel, but I think it was a good thing to kind of think about as we start moving forward in time and hopefully have more opportunities to go out and travel. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Aces Cases. Follow us on Instagram at casestudy.show. We have a website. It might be broken. I'm working on it, casestudy.show. And make sure to check us out on your audio podcast service of choice. We should be there. If not, please let me know and I will fix it. Music for the podcast was provided under a Creative Commons license by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening. Case number two zero two one zero four zero four closed.